if the stakeholders are involved from the onset, and they may not be like believers to begin with, but if I can convert them, and and if I have my stakeholders that are active, engaged, I'm like ninety percent sure that I'm going to be able to move from insights into action and get that team to act and and address the learnings along the way. And that's how I measure my success. It's not just in providing the information that they're looking to learn about. It's about moving the teams to be able to act on that information you know, quickly and efficiently and effectively. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with Michelle Ronson. She is a consultant and educator Uh, all things design and UX research. She teaches at General Assembly and UC Berkeley and has a thriving consulting business as well. Today, we're going to talk about something I'm real excited about, which is, look, like we love user research around here a lot, but it doesn't mean you should always do user research. And we're going to talk about when you should not do user research. So this should be a fun one. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Aaron. And we've got JH here too. Yeah, this topic seems a little blasphemous for us, so uh, but I'm nothing if not open-minded, so I'm excited for it. All right, so Michelle, get us started. What is just what is one time, one reason one might not want to do user research? That's a great question. Um, first, like maybe um, kind of set the context we've um, many people shared my delight of um, the recognition of how critical user research is in the product development um, and service development cycle um, and more individuals and organizations are excited to learn um, more about user research and how to do it um, I think we you know are bordering on becoming sort of a feedback obsessed culture and that's a totally different topic um, but Wait, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I think it has its pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I personally have mixed mixed uh, emotions when I read like obsessed, user obsessed. It's like, oh, maybe you should chill out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good point, right? Like you can only hedge your uncertainty to a certain level. Like you can't eliminate it fully. And so at what point are you hitting diminishing returns is, is pretty important. I think that's a great question. So um, which is also a, a great segue into this list that I compiled um, seven reasons not to conduct user research. And um, it, it came about because I um, field a lot of questions for my students um, and my clients about what's the best way to approach X or what's the best method to use for Y or how do we phrase, you know, this, you know, X, Y, Z, we're trying to learn about one, two, three. And, and not all of these questions um, are user research problems. Um, many, many different um, questions can be answered by different means that don't have to do with um, interviewing or interacting with customers directly. And one of the first um, things I like to communicate in my classes and with new clients is, you know, my personal preference is to let's look under our own hoods first. Like, let's find out what we could learn Um without talking to people. Like there's a lot of experience in the room. If you're asking the question, there's some people who know something about the topic. 
um, the two people that I like to seek out first in an organization are the data analysts and the customer um, support people, people that are handling help tickets. Um, so if you have an existing product or you have something that exists out there or a competitor does, there's so much to learn, you know, from, from what's already out there. So I think that if you can answer a question better with analytics, use analytics or at least start there. And that will help you make a more informed decision about what to do later on. How do you know if you if you can better answer a question with analytics and if you can't? I think the first question, you know, I would ask myself and how I how I like to teach this is, do you have something that exists? Do you have something that is out there in the wild in some sort of format? And if the answer is yes, and then the next question is, is it live, you know, somewhere? And you have some sort of analytics, whether it's just Google Analytics and you can tell, you know, where these people are coming from or where they're clicking or where they're going or they're abandoning um, or keyword searches um, or something a little bit more robust. If it's some, if it's a product or service that's been out there for, you know, even a couple of months and you have any sort of tagging going on, you can, you can learn a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. On the customer support side, how do you go about making sense or picking up on trends of what they're hearing? I feel like it's such a rich source because they're on the front lines, but often it's not really like organized or necessarily, you know, prepared in a way to just dig through. So like, how do you actually like start to find insights there? I should probably temper this conversation with saying that I'm not a, a, a formally trained researcher. I'm a recovering designer. So my approach <laughs> is um, probably somewhat uh, unorthodox. So um, the way I approach it is I like to introduce myself to the person that oversees the support in that group and just say very candidly, hey, I'm a, um, I'm a researcher and I'm working on, you know, this topic that I understand that you, you know, help oversee. Um, I'm curious about, let's just make something up. I'm curious about, you know, the onboarding process. Um, what do you think? What's going on here? You know, what's working, what's not. And then um, what sort of suggestions have you made, if any, um, what sort of improvements have occurred over time? Um, how often are you interacting with your uh, product manager or designer, if ever? Um, and, and a couple times, like I'm the first person to introduce that triangle. Um, and it seems like it's like these people are such a source of truth. And the same with the analyst. So I'll go to the analyst. I'm, hey, I'm new. I don't know anything. I have this beginner mindset. I want to be your friend. I bet you know a lot about what's going on here. Let's look under the hood. Tell me, what do you see? And then the three of us, I mean, those two people can tell you what's happening, you know, based on their, based on their records and based on their spikes and drops. But they can't necessarily tell you why it's happening. And that's where user research, you know, is really, it's just a terrific compliment. But I love having those two, like, those are my buddies. Those are the first buddies I want in the company. Okay. All right. You got a nice plug for user research in there. We knew, knew it was going to happen, but let's talk about why user research is the wrong, wrong thing to do. Uh, what's another, so if, if analytics can answer your question, use analytics, what's another reason you maybe shouldn't do user research? Um, so let me let me let me complete that thought. If analytics can 
question in terms of like what's happening. So for example, where are people dropping off in the onboarding flow or where's the friction in the onboarding flow? We can answer that question through analytics. Then we use that analytics to inform some sort of user research and follow up to talk to people about why that particular section in the flow is difficult. If, it's an, if, if there's something out there in the wild. Another example would be if time doesn't permit it. So if we're looking to understand, for example, the college application process, and we're looking to understand what's working and what's not, um, but the, the, the team needs the answers in two days, we're not going to have a time to do you know, a, proper, a proper diary study. We shouldn't force something within, you know, because of a time constraint. We shouldn't truncate our, the, the appropriate methodology because of a time constraint. If that's a real time constraint, well, let's figure out another way to approach it. And maybe another way to approach it is to do some secondary research and comb through some reviews of some college application sites or something like G2 Crowd and find out, you know, what people are saying about the process or about this tool. So we can learn in other ways, but I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, sh- you know, shoving a square peg into a circle, circle hole, if you will. Yeah, this is a super interesting one to me because... I, I agree with you. Like we shouldn't like force it or compromise the research process so heavily that it's not actually valid or useful anymore. My concern about it, and I wonder if you have thoughts on this, is it also feels like something there's a pretty common excuse people might use of why they're going to skip research and just follow their instincts or, or do what's in their gut. Um, so how do you like make sure that this is coming up for like the right reasons? You know what I mean? It's not something that people are like leaning on as like a lazy crutch to get out of having to do research. So if I'm understanding your, your question together, uh, you're asking, um, how do, how do we get out of the, we don't have time sort of excuse? Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a bad PM who likes to just do whatever he wants. And so someone's like, Hey, are you guys going to do research on this new feature? And I'm like, Nope, no time. Um, like that feels like a bad cycle to get into. So I don't like, I don't like to say no. Um, but what I, what I like to do is come back with options and say, I don't think this is the best approach right now, but what we can do is start to put our heads together and do more of like a, a rolling research, um, series of studies where I can be answering, you know, maybe specific questions or we focus on a specific topic and we get deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, as we go. So I can feed you information that will help you make more informed decisions if we work together, you know, on, on, on a plan that can get you, you know, the information, you know, that, that will be helpful for you to, to progress. But, but what I don't think we should do is, you know, very much to your point is, you know, try to shove something in. Let's, let's right size, let's look at the, the actual time we have. And I'm sure we could find something, you know, to work within that time frame. And better yet, let's be a little bit more strategic about it and step back and then, plan, you know, plan something for the next six weeks or plan something for the next, you know, six months. Yeah, it's a good point, I think, because, you know, the underlying issue can often be, well, we never have time or um, we're, we're just not making research a priority in general. But I think your point here, Michelle, is, well, you've made that mistake. Don't make it worse by pretending you're doing meaningful research when you haven't given yourself the time, right? And make the best use of the time you do have with, with the right method which might be analytics to your point or or something other than uh, a longitudinal study or whatever. Let's identify like 
let's look at your roadmap and find out what kinds of questions and what kinds of people we think we're going to want to talk to at certain, you know, phases in, you know, the overall process. And then let me plan for that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to do that. It's good, probably going to be more meaningful to you anyway, because if we are a little bit more agile and we have a little bit more improv, I'm, I'm a huge, huge believer to me, user research is part art, part science and part improv. Hmm. And if we can all kind of get a little jiggy with it, you know, <laughs> right. And, and that's my goal, right. I want to get you, I want to get you the most meaningful input at the right time from the right people. Yeah. The, the time thing though, um, it's interesting to me. And one of the pushbacks, you know, that I have is it's funny. You don't think you have the time to do research right now, but you think that you have the time to correct the mistakes that research might not have, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so you're, you invest the time now or invest the time later. But my suggestion is let's not stop anything. Let me, let me ride sidecar along with you. And um, I want to be your friend, mm-hmm. right? So let's be buddies. I don't want to disrupt. <laughs> I think we'll call this episode, <laughs> Michelle Ronson wants to be your friend. <laughs> your research buddy, your research, your research guru. Absolutely. <laughs> what I love about that is, I do think it's like a very pragmatic perspective, right? Like I think sometimes it's easy to be idealistic and be like, you know, stop the whole project and we're going to make more time for research. And to your point that while that might be great or the right solution, it doesn't win you a lot of friends in some cases. And there are other ways to, you know, get ahead of future problems in a way that might be better received by by the different stakeholders and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, to me, the, the biggest predictor of success on a study or in a, in a client relationship is how involved the stakeholders are. And if, if the stakeholders are involved from the onset, and they may not be like believers to begin with, but if I can convert them, and, and if I have my stakeholders that are active, engaged, I'm like 90% sure that I'm going to be able to move from insights into action and get that team to act and, and address the learnings along the way. And that's how I measure my success. It's not just in providing the information that they're looking to learn about. It's about moving the teams to be able to act on that information you know, quickly and efficiently and effectively. So I'm out, you know, I'm out to make friends. I want to include them. And hey, they know more than I do about the product and they have different expertise and I want to learn from them. It will just be a whole, it, everything is just stronger and better if, if we work in concert. Yeah. I sound like a Hallmark card. <laughs> totally. Well, another one on your list was if you don't have stakeholder buy-in, that's not a great situation to do research within. And, and this kind of feels related to that. Um, how have you seen that one play out? Totally. I mean, there have been times where I've been brought on in stealth mode where, you know, the VP of something says, hey, I have a hypothesis. I want you to explore it, um, but you're going to be working in a vacuum because we can't tell anyone about this. But other than those situations, which are far and few between, again, I, I find that the biggest predictor of success is stakeholder involvement. And, um, You know, I'm a big believer, you know, from an education standpoint, I understand people learn in different ways and, you know, the different roles on a product development team, you know, from your engineer to your product manager, to your designer, to your content strategist, like everybody brings something different to the table and I want to learn from them. And and if we can all come together, you know, and and, and get actively engaged and and ideally tie the research goals, you know, to, to their goals, to their individual performance goals or their team goals, you know, that will just increase the chance of success exponentially. 
You talked about stakeholder involvement, right? And another phrase you said was um, stakeholder buy-in, right? So those are different things, buy-in and involvement, potentially. Do you ever see a case where, like, is all stakeholder involvement good? Do you ever get any, like, naysayers involved who are um, maybe not helpful or, like, beginners who... Uh, don't really know what's going on with the research and uh, find a way to use it for harm? Or is all stakeholder involvement just good and just be buddies with everybody and get everybody involved? And that's going to be a good thing. Do you have any tips around, you know, kind of how to get stakeholders involved? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting. No, it's not all good. Um, <laughs> I, I like to just, I, first, I guess I understand, you know, their, their level of experience with um, user research in the past. Um, and if they don't have that, then do some quick education right there on the spot in the moment. So for example, my research plan is not going to be 12 pages. It's not going to include every single question in the guide. Um, for me, the research plan will be successful if we are identifying the umbrella questions and understand very, very clearly how the research will be applied or what will happen to those learnings mm. and when, um, and, um, and we can go from there. So to, to me, it's like, that's the first sort of level. Let's, let's just make sure that we're on the same page. So this is what we're trying to learn. And this is why we're trying to learn it. And this is how we're going to apply those learnings. You know, that's sort of the first step. The next step is, okay, let's coordinate and, you know, dig a little deeper and, and, um, explore some components of the plan. But I also want to make sure that, um, each person in the room is, tied to or will benefit from that exploration, you know, in some way. Um, but I'll author the document. I'll provide you with commenting rights. We'll get it to a point, but we have a deadline. So we'll get to a good enough point, you know, and then move on. And these are living, breathing documents. And, and I want you to um, be involved in the documents. At some point though, we, we have to either, um, agree to disagree or agree to just keep progressing because we've got to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's try it out. You know, if, if it's not working, this is what pilot sessions are for as well. If we're not getting, if the questions aren't clear, if we're not getting the types of responses we hoped for or the depth, or we have too many questions or too few questions, you know, we do a series of pilot sessions, at least one pilot session, if not a series, you know, to, to test that and, Iterate and tinker along the way. I'm a big tinkerer. <laughs> is is a pilot session just the first session, or it's like you try to space it out from the other sessions so there's time to like regroup and make changes? You know, that's a really good question. I think it depends on the culture and it depends on what we're trying to learn and the maturity and the the timeline of the overall project. Um, I I definitely find that the longer I work with a client team. Um, the more symbiotic the process is and we're able to move exponentially faster as that relationship grows for a couple of reasons. One, they're more familiar with the process. Two, there's more trust that's been developed over time. And three, it's I've been able to demonstrate progress and, and uh, results that have been in helped them progress and make more informed decisions with confidence so everything just gets shorter, like right? it becomes like a shorthand relationship, like with your partner or your roommate, you know, you can kind of shoot each other looks about who's doing dishes or not. <laughs> it's a different, you know, it's a similar relationship, you know, but it's sort of in a different format. All right. A quick, awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know, what's really fun 
is doing user research. And we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more. So we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. All right. What, when else should we not do research? Uh, we, one of the ones you talked about was uh, obviously something we're going to totally agree with, which is when you don't know who you should be talking to, when you don't know uh, who's going to give you the insights you seek. Tell us a little more about that. So gathering feedback from the right people is really paramount. And um, here's an example. And this comes up a lot most in um, discovery calls or, or new business calls. I had someone uh, approach me and ask if I would um, be interested in collaborating on a project um, with my General Assembly students. And I asked him to tell me a little bit about the project. And he was redesigning a website for a uh, makeup provider, a um kind of like a Sephora, but, but, but not type of retailer. And in, in conversation with him, he thought it would be a good fit because it would give my students um, exposure to a real world project. Um, and it would be a good fit for him because he would be able to gather um, a ton of actual feedback. And I was curious about the request because um, to me, that's not at all a good use of um, the people that he should be gathering feedback from. Um, because first of all, half of my general assembly students are male, right? And my hypothesis is that most people buying makeup online are female. Um, secondly, you know, the demographics of, of my students are probably more educated and perhaps more natural and more tech savvy because of where we're located in the Bay Area. Um, and that might not fit, you know, their core buyer kind of, but he was sorry. He was very surprised and he, um, you know, he kind of picked and poked at me and said, but don't you think this would be a great experience? And I said, I think this would be a great experience in what not to do. <laughs> um, and and it's you know it turned out to be a very fruitful conversation, and he thanked me very much. And he said, "I just I never really thought about it like that." And I said, "You know, gathering the right information from the right people is kind of like you know it's like that's foundational, right? We don't want to ask the wrong people question because we're not going to gather meaningful feedback." I say that all the time. Um, you know, it's, you know, human beings are all wonderful flowers and everyone deserves to be heard, but <laughs> you gotta, you know, be smart about who you listen to for, you know, what problems you're trying to solve. Exactly. Like I, I don't, you know, getting feedback from someone who's 28, a uh, male, you know, student who's 28 years old about buying eyeshadow, you know, online. Hey, hey, to be fair, could be into eyeshadow. Or, or to be fair, but the majority, I mean, as a yes, right, right. If you're doing just bulk targeting, yeah, absolutely. Usually absolutely not the right people to be asking. But yeah, it would be a good experience. <laughs> but a very different experience. If you don't know why you're doing the research, seems obvious. Um, and how and when the learnings will be applied, important part of that. Pause right there. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so these three questions are pretty paramount. If you don't know why you're doing the research, I don't think you're going to be able to build a great plan 
and ask the right questions. Um, knowing that outcome or knowing that end goal will really be informative. And th- this is also a key reason to get your stakeholders involved too, because your stakeholders should all understand why you're doing it as well. Um, so if we just want to do like a general exploration, that's fine. You know, maybe we're doing it to become a little bit more informed about a product or service or a new um, profile or target that we might go after. So maybe we're doing it sort of in a generative way so we can become a little bit more informed about what could be. That's a totally fine, you know, answer to why. Um, but if we're, we're if we're doing something a little more, more tactical or we're doing something that requires, um, you know, any sort of like task-based something or evaluative-based something or, you know, generative something, we want to know, why we're doing it. If we can't answer the question why, I would suggest abandoning ship at that point. And also, if we can't, if you can't agree on why, there may be more than one why, and that's fine. But if we can't agree on the why, then we're not going to be moving forward in lockstep. And I'm guessing this one sounds so obvious, but I'm guessing you've encountered this happening before. Yes. Um, so, and that's really a clear indicator to me of how mature the organization is in regards to user research. Um, and sometimes this is about, you know, you know, finding my buddies and, and, and collaborating in getting everyone to kind of sing the same tune. It's like hurting, you know, a team of feral cats, right. But, but (laughs) if you can do it, if you can do it, it is so much more powerful and so much more successful And again, you're able to move from insights into action just so much faster. Do you find that it's the once pressed to like state the why that most teams can usually like, it's kind of floating around somewhere. They just haven't like articulated it. And if they think about it for a little bit, they can narrow it down and like articulate it. Or is it, there are actually some people who truly like, even when pressed, just cannot get there. And they're like, we have no idea. I think more of the, at least in my experience, it's we're doing it to find out which one's better or we're doing it to find out um, uh, which ones resonate or um, which ones are preferred. But then I'll dig deeper. It's like, but why do we want to know that? But why do we want to know that? Why do we want? So, you know, using the five whys or laddering usually gets us there. But but the engineer might want to know why for a different reason. He might want to know or she might want to know why, because he's thinking about how can I repurpose some sort of code set? And the designer might want to know why, because that's going to influence some sort of pattern library, you know, that's being developed by her partner team at the same time. And the product manager might want to know. So they they each might be coming at this with slightly different angles, which is totally fine. I want to understand all those angles, too. Because again, my goal is to make sure that that whatever we're learning about is going to be meaningful and impactful to that whole team, so we can move that much more, you know, quickly into action. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's like just don't let it go unsaid. Like actually get it all out on the table. Make sure everyone's why is understood and out there, and then figure it out from there, sort of. Yeah, and and by by hearing the the disparate views on, of why, and then understanding how it can be helpful, it actually brings us closer together as a team. And then and then the why is really important too. So if you if you have two months to explore this question, um, that you know will open up many many different doors for how you might explore it. Versus if you have two days or two weeks, you know. So 
when when would be too late for you to have this information is is a great question to ask. And 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 why would it be too late at that date? I wonder if when you start uncovering the whys, right? Assuming that there are whys there, some motivations there, does that ever relate to another another one of your reasons not to do user research, which is if you're just trying to sell your design that you've already come up with? Does that come up, right? Where it's um I don't want to say malicious, but let's say not um, um, pure intentions of just uncovering the truth, right? Does that ever come out um, when you kind of dig, dig into these these whys? Um, not as explicitly with the people that I work with, but I think what you're talking about is like research as a weapon. And it can definitely be weaponizing, you know, where... It, with the the toolkit and the access, I mean, we can we can we can pretty much blow anybody up we want. It's about, <laughs> but the the ethics there, you know, pre- prevent us from from doing that. Um, but you know, doing or conducting user research or wanting to conduct user research to to mask it as a way to prove a point or to validate you know one direction or another. Um, is just is just wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, user research is um, it, as an industry, we work in service to that to that user, not to ourselves. And you know what? It's going to come back and bite you anyway. It's not going to be legitimate, you know, feedback. This feels like a really hard one to detect. Like some of the other ones, right? Of we don't have enough time. Kind of obvious. Hey, why are you doing this research? And someone's like, uh, like pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> but someone has bad intentions and they're actually just trying to advance their own idea and sell their design. How, how do you actually discover that? Like, how do you know, like, how do you, how do you put the brakes on it in this situation? Well, as a researcher, you're kind of the maestro of the organization. So, or I think what, you know, I would say is, are, are we looking to understand which concept you know, resonates the most? Um, then when I'm building the script, I'm going to, or, or the guide and, and going through the, the planning process and, and, and uh, conducting the sessions, I'm going to make sure that there's um, or do my absolute best to make sure that any sort of bias is removed. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. So, to, and that's another great activity to do while we're all kumbayaing is, is let's get our biases and assumptions and hypotheses out on the table before we begin. Not, it's not right or wrong to have biases or assumptions or hypotheses like we all have them like let's just be honest about them and sometimes it's kind of fun you know i really want concept a because you know my mom likes it or it's purple or whatever (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that like let's let's get it out again it's going to bring us closer oh your mom likes purple my mom likes purple too (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like you're working with a lot of like very evolved people because i don't know to me i would just think if i um you know, like, let's say I want my design to, you know, win this research test because I spent like a lot of time on it or it's been my pet idea for two years. Like, am I going to admit that um, to myself or to another person? I don't know. I um, It sounds like um, you're, you're having good luck with getting kind of extracting that from folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's about building that trust, yeah. right? And I think it's about you know laying that framework and I got try to go in with that beginner's mindset too um and you know I don't remember if I said this but I come from a design background like I know how painful it is to kill your babies I 
totally remember that. And I still have to do it now, like in, in research. I mean, sometimes I can't use like the method I really, really, really want to use um, or, you know, some other way, but I think it's about building that trust and it's, it's about, um, you know, really trying to approach it in a, in a partnership. And the, the more that we can, you know, build that rapport and that trust with each other, the more we're going to open up. All right. Last one, right size the question. Um, is your question too big, too small? And this gets, you know, it gets into the time again. Do you have the right amount of time? Um, to talk to us about the importance of having the right size question. Yeah, this is a great one. And this one comes up, um, um, a lot in sort of first, first conversations or discovery calls. So for example, I had a commercial, um, real estate company, um, a series of conversations with them last month. And, um, their original question was, um, we'd like to learn how to maximize our assets. And um, that's a great question, right? But that's not necessarily a user research question. It's just, it's way too big. A commercial real estate company can maximize their assets by, uh, and, I, and I went through this. I don't know too much about commercial real estate, but I said, I hypothesize you could raise your rents. You could cut your utility costs. You could um, purchase more space. You could convert, you know, you could sell ice cream. I don't, no, you know, you could increase your services. There's so many ways to increase your assets. Like we want to focus. We want to let's, let's right size that question. Okay. So let's find out like, can we shorten the time it takes to apply to rent a property? So therefore we shorten the vacancy window. Like that would be, you know, one way we can like, we don't want to boil the ocean. So let's right size it. Should we look at all your utilities or should we look at the process to pay your utilities? Should we look at your, 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 you know, your rental rates and do like a comparison, which by the way, wouldn't be user research either. That would be more market research. But um, that's another point we can add here is like, when is it market research? Um, but, but that question, how do we maximize our assets? That's just, that's just way too big. It's way too big to, to explore. I mean, maybe, maybe we want to do like a generative study to, to find out like the three most viable ways and then dive in, but it's just too broad. And in the same respect, we want, don't want to ask something that is way too narrow as well. So um, for example, we don't want to spend, you know, a couple of weeks studying, um, you know, if somebody can sign on to, a financial app. I was going to say, say, say button color. That's like the go-to, you know, <laughs> what, co- what color should the button be? I want to see the case study of when the button color, like just changed the business <laughs> comes up so much. Oh, I you have, have one. one. All right. Tell me about it. Yeah. When I was working at Vistaprint, uh, we had all these custom landing pages that were made and they had, you know, like product tiles on them. And there was like a get started button or something. And it was very like bland and kind of got lost in the page. And somebody ran an A-B test to make it like a bright orange. And it can increase conversion enough to be worth like over like 100K a month in like profit. It was Amazing. crazy. Uh, that's a good one. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. If she was like very junior and she's like, hey, what if we just made this button like a lot more obvious? Wouldn't more people click it? And so they ran the A-B test and it like, <laughs> like did very, very well. And we're like, wow, great idea. <laughs> now I'm looking at our button color. all right so okay so not not too big not too small goldilocks questions um 
obviously we can turn a lot of these no's into yeses by, um, you know, by inverting, inverting them and <laughs> right sizing the question. Now we, now we have permission to go and do some user research, right? Um, what do you see the most commonly? What's the, what's the, you know, where do people get tripped up the most? I would see that the, in terms of frequency, um, not leveraging your analytics, it, not marrying your analytics and looking under like your own hood first. Um, I was last year I ha- was on a, a year, had a year long consulting engagement at a, at a well-known um, uh, firm and um, the product team that I was working with, uh, the designer had never interacted with um, the analyst or the person in uh, tech support, customer support. Didn't even know who it was actually. And um, never really thought to make that connection, nor did the researcher who they had worked with prior. So it was just never a relationship that they had fostered. Different flavor, similar thing is what about not looking at user research that's already been done, right? So not analytics necessarily, but, you know, insights you might already have. Absolutely. What do we know about this? Um, you know, it, it, have, have we explored you know, it internally, have we um, done some secondary research on it? How did, how did we get here? How did the question get to this point? How did the question get to me? Like what happened, you know, to, to lead us here? And, and that ties also back to earlier conversations in terms of what do we know? What do we hypothesize? What do we assume? You know, and that is generally based on um, uh, or hopefully, you know, garners the conversation about what other work has been done in the space. Mm. What, what I am starting to think as I like look at this list holistically and now having talked about it is it does feel like a lot of things on here serve as like an early warning system or like the canary. And if you catch these things early enough, there's a chance to like right size it or adjust and actually go on to have successful research. Right. And there's, if you can't fix it, like pull the plug to your point and the whole premise of this discussion. Um, and I, and then the first thing that comes to mind is like the whole uh, checklist manifesto. It almost feels like this could be like a cool thing for teams to go down and be like, can we answer this with analytics? Yes or no. You know, do we have enough time? Yes or no. Like, and actually kind of use it. Like, have you, have you thought about using it that way at all? Yeah, I have a number of checklists and resources that I've developed. Um, they're all on my website for download, ronsonconsulting.com. Um, in the, in the resources section. Um, and this is another great checklist. I have a couple of checklists up there. Um, one is about how to evaluate bias, like, and uh, one is, um, I think, 15 questions you should ask yourself before you launch a study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Nice. And um, there's a great question starters kit in there. So uh, break down the um, typical phases in an interview. Um, and then I developed like a, a question bank, if you will, with like three pre-study questions or warm-up questions or, well, 15. And then if you choose three from pretty much the, the pre and then the digging deeper and then the wrap up, like you have a, you know, pretty good framework for, for a guide. I, I think that one thing that's important to discuss, um, if I can just pivot just slightly, is that there's no one single way to gather information. And there's no one right way for a team to go about it. You know, there's better ways, but if there's one thing that I've taken away from consulting for seven years in the business, it's that every culture is different. Every question is different. There are similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And 
if we get out of the mindset of like right or wrong or, you know, the best way to do something, um, there's more room for improvement. And, you know, the more you know, the, the better you get. So it's better to start somewhere than, than not start at all. Good pep talk. Yeah, I love that nuance. I feel like what's really fun to pivot kind of off that even, right, is like, I think what's fun about the whole podcast format is it is a format that actually allows for like nuance and some of that kind of like, you know, fine-tuned stuff that you were just getting into in, in a way that like a lot of our other online formats do not seem to uh, allow for very well. What do you mean fine-tuned in the format? Um, just like, uh, sorry, like what you were saying, like there's no way, one way to gather information, right? And so like, there's a lot of like nuance and context and all of this stuff that you have to kind of factor in to know how to go and do that in a given situation. And like in this type of discussion, it allows us to explore that and kind of like appreciate that context and nuance and richness. And I feel like just when you see people like on Twitter or other common places, it's usually much more like absolute stances of the only way to answer a question is blah, you know what I mean? And, and so I'm just, uh, you know, that's what I really enjoy about these conversations is we actually get to get into some of that, like, well, you know, it depends. And there's a lot of factors and there's not like an absolute way to do everything. Right. And reading like a long, you know, it depends article gets like, not enjoyable really fast, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it depends. And then sub point B and then over now we're over here. And I'm like, geez, God, but, uh, you know, in a conversation, I think it feels um, hopefully just engaging and, and natural and organic and dynamic, three-dimensional, things like that. I think it's also authentic, right? It's, it's one, of the, one of the fascinating things about, about our industry and user research is that it's just, it's, it's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. It's, it's evolving. It's, um, it's it's dynamic it's living it's breathing it's amorphous but i think also that's where that's where a lot of the improv comes in right so the podcast allows for this like improv to totally take place which is so fun i'm loving it. Nice. i'm glad you got to close with my uh just being like how sweet is this podcast guys huh? Let's check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should cut that part but, uh... i think an improv um, we're supposed to say yeah, yes and there's a sand, yeah, no bad ideas. A friend actually who now is doing, you know, um, some kind of like product and design consulting type stuff and, and that gets into research as well, but he does a lot of improv. And so he actually just did at a larger company, like an improv, improv training uh, course with their user research team. Um, it's kind of like a way to think on your feet and do other stuff. I don't actually know how it went, but it sounded really fun. And I was kind of jealous that we got to do that. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. <laughs>